Welcome to this very special episode of Mysterious Circumstances. In this episode, I do interview Collier Landry, and if you do not know who that is, please do a quick Google search and you will find out very quickly. It is a very open and honest conversation. Collier is an amazing guy, he's an amazing advocate, and I really think you are going to enjoy this interview because it's going to give you a perspective from what it was like for him. He is also the subject and creator of the documentary A Murder in Mansfield, along with a podcast host. He does the podcast Moving Past Murder. I hope you guys enjoy this. It's such a great interview. I can't thank Collier enough. Such a nice guy. Also, new Patreon subscribers, I'm going to thank you on the next episode. This is one of those episodes I really want to kind of stand alone, so... I hope you do enjoy and you get some insight. Let's get on with the interview. Welcome to Mysterious Circumstances Podcast. I have a very good interview here. I sound a little bit lighthearted just because me and Collier here have been talking for about an hour. <laughs> and uh, right. we know a lot of the same people and had, had great conversation so yeah, Collier Landry is joining us, and he was the subject of the documentary A Murder in Mansfield, and now he hosts a podcast called Moving Past Murder. It's a very good podcast, very important one, and Collier, I appreciate you very much, man. I appreciate you joining me, man. Hey, man. Thank you so much for having me on the program, and yeah, it's been a wild trip. We've been talking for like the last hour almost and <laughs> discovering, yeah. you know, and, and as I was telling you, I'm so even though I made the film, right, I didn't set out to make a true crime film. And my and my experience in all of this whole genre is obviously what happened to me as a kid, right? Mm -hmm. But also, like as a film, I come in and do it as a filmmaker, as a director of photography, as a guy who shoots like, you know, I just had a music video that I directed hit a billion views on YouTube like two weekends ago, which nice. was like a big deal. Very big <laughs> and deal. And I'm like, oh, that's that's crazy. And like, so I come into it with this whole other, like, mind the pun, but a whole different lens that I view everything through. So it's like, you know, now you're talking about all these people that I've met at CrimeCon that I've never been to a CrimeCon before. <laughs> and these other podcasters and other like personalities in the true crime space. And it's just wild. It, it, our conversation has been so cool. And so uh, yeah. it's one of those little ancillary benefits of being on your show is like, oh, it's like this weird <laughs> synchronicities. It's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was surprised when you started bringing up some names. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know him, man. He's a good dude. He's really awesome. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah. I got this person, too. <laughs> and by the way, <laughs> shout out to Tyler from Minds of Madness. <laughs> one of my shout out one to of my, Tyler, <laughs> one of my best friends in podcasting. And we've known each other for years since he started, man. Great dude. Great, great dude. And then, of course, Sarah Turney, very good friend of mine as well. Um, yeah, Sarah's awesome. So. We wanted to do this interview uh, basically to talk about what did happen to you, you know, what transpired afterward, but also to talk about what you're doing now and what your plans are for the future, because I don't like just concentrating on the bad events. I also like concentrating on the good things that come out of them, and sure. you've you've definitely, there's not too many people that come out of a situation like that who are successful in anything, let alone advocating for true crime and, and victims and, and stuff like that. So for the people who don't know, 
Let's first talk about your childhood before the event happened. Were there any warning signs? Did you have a good relationship with your father and your mother? And what, what was your childhood like before 1989? I, I guess that I thought growing up that I, you know, I grew up in a pretty, we're all a product of our environment, right? In a lot of mm-hmm. ways, whatever our sense of reality is like, this is what, must be what the world is, right? I grew up in what I considered to be a very normal family. I was very close with my mother. I wasn't, I didn't spend a lot of time with my father. My father was a doctor and he was gone most of the time. And I would, I did spend time with him. It would either be to go to the hospital with him on his rounds uh, while he would go see his patients, or I would go on a ski trip with him because we both liked to ski and my mother would go as well um, for the most part. And so I guess I thought it was normal and I had friends growing up. So I grew up in a small town in, in Ohio and you're over in Indiana. So we both oh, yeah. Westerners. Definitely. I grew up in a small town called Mansfield, Ohio. And I had moved there. I was five years old from Virginia, which is where I lived before, obviously. And uh, my father was a doctor on a naval base outside Dahlgren, Virginia. And so we moved to the small town in Ohio and my whole family is like they're urban they're all from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So they're from the city. So going to Virginia and then moving to a small town in Ohio was like a total different culture shock type of situation. So, but I grew, I, I felt like I grew up in a fairly normal household, but that said, my father definitely had a proclivity for violence and also for, you know, he was Italian. So he had the typical or stereotypical Italian male, uh, machismo also just drop a hat temper you know he could just go off on without warning it was a rage sort of thing and he would just you know he was violent he was abusive he was you know physically abusive verbally abusive screamer tirades just over nothing like over literally nothing like an egg falling out of a carton on the floor like it, that would just set him off which was kind of a weird sort of dichotomy because he was such a good doctor, right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, he had this compassionate healer sort of side to him. So I kind of like grew up knowing my father as a sort of almost like a Jekyll and Hyde character in a lot of ways, you know? And I think anyone who's in an abusive relationship, whether it's a parental child relationship or a, a you know, a, a domestic partnership, husband, wife, whatever that is, you know, romantic relationship, I think. You just accept that as that comes to the territory, right? So mm-hmm. I knew that my I would tiptoe around my father after a while and things, and my mom and I were gonna be like, "Don't say that; it'll upset your father," that, like that type of thing. But you know, a lot of my friends growing up were from single parent households, or you know, they were split joint custody with with other parents, right? So they're you know, obviously divorced, and so and they had other brothers and sisters from other marriages. And so I thought I would see that. I'd be like, okay, well, I at least have a mommy and daddy and I, and I live in this house and, and I have like my family and my dog and you know what I mean? And so I felt very grateful for that despite all of the sort of, you know, things on the periphery with my father. Mm -hmm. Uh, And obviously we'll get into this in a sec, but you know, my father also had a proclivity for womanizing, (laughs) which I was not aware of at all so i kind of grew up and because i was so loved and protected by my mother and i was essentially her her sidekick because i spent probably like 95 percent of my time with my mother and you know that i wasn't in school or things like that right Mm -hmm. and she was like my world and i was her world 
but in a very you know my mother was a a very caring and and loving woman and just very outgoing and and had a wonderful personality but also she was you know she didn't suffer fools with with people and with with me as her son you know she she was very disciplined she instilled discipline in me you know children are to mm-hmm. be seen not heard type of situation that midwestern mom <laughs> yeah and also just sort of like and she was german irish so she kind of grew up with this very structured you know she was very both of my parents were very big on education and like sundays were to like go to the bookstore and hang out and pick out books and read <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> it wasn't like you know and i and i made this joke the other day i said they were kind of asking about like the case and everything and i said well how did you do all of this and what what, what made you see it i was like this is what happens when you're the last kid on the in your friend group to get a nintendo <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, i didn't have the like my parents were very much like no you're gonna learn and i would get out of school and you know, for summer school and, you know, we were talking about your, your, your boys. And it was like, when does summer oh, school, yeah. when does summer start? And, and then I would literally get a week <laughs> to play with my friends. And then I'd go to, into like classes for art and music and, and science and all this, like it was summer school would start. And I just thought that was normal, you know? So that was like my <laughs> sort of world. I realized that like, no kids like go to the pool and like, you know, not that I didn't do that, but it was, there was a lot of structure in my life, which I thought yeah. was good too. I mean, I, look, I was from a sort of military family. My father was in the Navy. Um, my, most of my relatives were, and my mother was a naval wife. And, and, you know, so there was a lot of structure and discipline. But yeah, so I definitely noticed things in my father, you know, this apoplectic sort of mode that he could just shift into was just, it was insane. You know, and mm-hmm. it got worse as I was growing up, and probably because I was being more cognitive of it or cognizant of it as a as a older child. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, in my late, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, I was becoming way more aware of like how my father was. So, you know, but I still considered myself to have a normal childhood. So, yeah. Going on that, because that was actually going to be my next question, is about you know what age you noticed that you know what maybe my dad is a little bit different than other dads or you know other parents and that's you look back and it could happen to anybody really it's you know you you have that one friend and you see how their family is acting it's like man my dad would have done this or that and then you know your your buddy's dad is just like oh no that's not a big deal you know and sometimes that's a tough realization to come to especially when you're at that age that is such an impressionable age right around that 8, 9, 10, 11 year old mark because as a, as a kid you're picking up on everything and yeah you are that's a little bit rough well i think too you know to piggyback on what you're saying with like oh my dad is different than other dads i mean a lot of my friends in the friend group when i moved to ohio right their dads were doctors or were okay. in um more of like an elite profession like a you know a lawyer or something where college educated you know master's degree whatever that that looks like right so they had these higher level jobs so their dads weren't around either right so if they weren't also you know in a in a um a severed family unit you know parents divorced whatever they they were in a family where dad wasn't around a lot because he was working all the time you know and he had a Mm -hmm. practice or he had this and that so I kind of also accepted that as like, oh, as normal. Now, 
you know, and I had friends whose fathers were violent as well. And I, you know, I did relate to that a lot. And I would be like, well, thank God I don't see my father that much. <laughs> but yeah, it was very, it was weird. I think that one of the things that my first memories of sort of noticing that things were off and not that I really understood how this dynamic worked at, you know, 10 years old, but my father was always like sleeping on the couch. And I remember asking him, like, why did you, why are you sleeping on the couch? Or I asked my mother, like, why is he sleeping on the couch? And obviously there were way different reasons than they were going to tell me. But it was, you know, my father was working. He came home from late from the office. He didn't want to disturb mommy. He didn't want to disturb the family upstairs or whatever that looks like. Right. So I started, I said, I started noticing that, you know, and being like, it's kind of weird. Like, okay, he doesn't come up to bed. He's on the couch sleeping and watching Larry King live, you know? So, yeah, I think that, and that's a really good question when I think about it, because that's like, oh yeah, that was a, that was a thing that I started to notice like around Mm -hmm. that age, like nine, 10, 11, like, oh, that's, that's interesting. Why is my dad sleeping on the couch all the time? But I would later find out the answer. Like I said, kids kids start noticing that kind of stuff at a certain age. And now leading up to the events of what happened, did the dynamic in the house change swiftly? Did it escalate over a short amount of time? What exactly oh, happened yeah. leading up to that um, that night? Yeah, so around Memorial Day weekend, 1989, my father had taken me to what he said was a patient's house and it was a, it was a young woman and um, it, it was a sort of a weird experience because these were people that were there. I mean, for lack of a better word, country folk, mm-hmm. you know, they had a big property, they had quads. Like I'd never seen any of this before. Have barbecues, <laughs> people drinking beer. Like that was not who my parents <laughs> hung out with. You know what I mean? It was out in the middle of the boondocks and it was, <laughs> it was cool. It was fun. I went on quad for the first time. I was like, this is super, this, there's dirt bikes. Like, what is this life? You know, I mean, I had a BMX bike, but I was like, I never knew that this type of fun, I think they may have even been shooting guns and what oh, yeah. I was like, this is, a, this is some good old redneck fashion fun. Yep. But, um, I remember my father putting his arm around this woman walking around the lake and I was like, kind of weird i asked him i was like well what's going on with that, that young lady daddy and he said that she was sick and that he was giving her treatments and things and he was trying to be compassionate about her because she was going to die and i was like oh okay and i was like well, that's really sad and terrible but i didn't really think anything of it and then it wasn't until father's day weekend 1989 that i saw the same woman and i saw my father kiss her mm. and he told me she gave us these radio control cars and he told me not to tell my mother where we got them from to lie to my mother and tell her that he gave me the radio control cars for us to play with because I got good grades that, that semester or that year, mm-hmm. whatever. And I'd never been, I'd never lied to my mother and I had never been asked by my father to lie to my mother that I could recall at that time. And I was like, this is like something's weird, you know, and, but I did. You know, because I did, because it's my dad, right? And it's like, mm-hmm. what are you going to do? Say no? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, exactly. and he already has this, like, proclivity to, like, literally go off and just lose his shit. So I was like, okay. And, you know, and I no- had noticed that over that probably, like, last year, things were escalating in the household. A lot more fights, you know, and and my mother tried to keep me away from that. But like, I remember him going on a tirade and he picked my dog up 
who's this wired hair fox terrier, and he grabbed the dog by the neck and threw it into the wall. Like he got so angry. I mean, it's lucky he didn't kill my dog. It's probably because it was a puppy that it didn't get die. He had a really violent temper. And my mother was crying hysterically. All this shit. He slammed doors and broke all the windows in the house. Just crazy shit, right? So I started noticing that. But this specific event, when he asked me to lie to my mother, and then I was like, okay. And so I did. And then the next day I was feeling so guilty. I, conf- I, I basically said to her, I said, look, I think daddy has a girlfriend. I told her what I saw. I told her that I saw him kiss her and those types of things. And I knew it wasn't a friendly kiss. You know, it was more of a romantic kiss. I was old enough to realize that. But she um, wasn't happy that I lied to her, but she understood and she thanked me for telling her the truth. And then I just remember going to her, going in and making a phone call and getting pretty angry. And then that was it. And then, you know, I found out my parents were getting a divorce. And then I realized that I was about ready to become like my friends. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and I was kind of, I was really kind of scared in a lot of ways. And, um, cause I didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah. And then, so let's say that's, you know, summer 1989. And what had happened is my mother had adopted a, a, a little girl from China. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a sister that had arrived, you know, that was obviously a joyous thing, but it was kind of in the middle of all this weird chaos yeah. too, because they were trying to get, they were trying to adopt her for a while, like almost a year. And, finally got her also that year like when my mother went to china and i was supposed to go with her to taiwan rather i had to stay back and it was the first time i was away from my mother with just my father for whatever it was a week and a half and he got really violent and i had testified about this how how violent he was he was screaming at me and calling me a stupid little fat boy and all these things because i had asthma really bad when i was a kid and so Mm -hmm. i had to take steroids because of the asthma so i was puffy i was a chubby little kid you know from about nine years till about like 13 13 when i got off the steroids you know but like they make you gain weight and water and i felt really bad about that right so but my father sort of took that opportunity to like torture me so this is before yeah. meeting the meeting this protection this woman. So this was like February of 1989. Sorry to kind of jump around, but that was like my first experience with my father by myself and the way that he treated me and just like he was making me watch like violent movies on television, like Commando. All of a sudden, like don't be a pussy, don't you need to watch this. Don't cover your eyes. He was getting angry at me for covering my eyes, like watching wow. violence, like. Like, I don't want to see that shit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I wasn't, you know, uh, I just wasn't into it. But the behavior starts to get a little wacky. And my father is now way more distant from the home. There's a lot of tension when he's around. Like, I could just, I, it's now in front of me. Whereas a lot of the tension before, unless he went off on a tirade, a lot of the, the, the tension before, if there was tension, I was not a witness to that. Mm-hmm. But now it was like, they're getting a divorce. The shit's hit the fan. And, I I didn't even know about the the woman, like what happened to her, you know? And then when I was spent to my father, I would occasionally, we would randomly bump into her (laughs) and her kids. And it was a weird situation. I'm like, what the hell? And I don't know that my, my father is saying things like, how's your stupid mother doing? And how's that asshole father doing? Like back and forth, I was being ping pong. Like most children are in divorces. Right. And so there was, you know, a little bit of that, but it started getting it started getting really weird because my father's behavior started changing. He bought like a truck 
and he was driving like a pickup truck. This guy that drove a BMW, right? <laughs> he was a doctor. <laughs> and now he's got a pickup truck. And we had we had bought the my father had bought this farm. <laughs> so he was gonna like raise cattle on or something. Like just weird, just some weird shit. Pretty random. <laughs> yeah. And he's like driving this truck and he's wearing cowboy boots and a cowboy hat and stuff. It's really bizarre. And I'm like, what is like going? My dad wore like Sperry Docksiders, you know, and and Dockers khaki pants. And he's wearing like jeans and cowboy boots and a cowboy hat. It was just the strangest thing. And <laughs> so we would actually like kind of like my mother and I would chuckle about this behavior because then I the, like the jig was up. He had a girlfriend. He was doing this to impress her, the mistress or whatever you want to call her. And so like, this is what he was doing. And it was just like, Oh my God, like this is crazy. Right. And it was like a running joke between my mother and I, and then my mother had said to me, this is like November of that year. She mentioned, she said, if call your, if I ever go missing, I want you to know that my father did something to me. Your father did something. Oh, to shit. Me. And I was like, Okay, but I filed that. And she's like, yeah. look, your father has mafia connections. He has this. Like, I want you to know that something happened to me and know that I would never I would never leave you, Collier, is what she told me. So flash forward. <laughs> All right, we're gonna stop here and take a break for a few minutes. I'm gonna play some advertisements. If you guys want to hit that fast forward button, that is great. If not, take this time, take a breather, step away, and come back because we still have a lot more to talk about. You know, I feel for you, man. I, especially after hearing that right there, what you just said. Uh, that yeah. brings us to New Year's Eve, the night the incident occurred, the murder occurred. Yeah. How did that transpire? You know, what happened? What was going through your mind? I know you were sleeping, if I read correctly, yeah. but yeah, I guess just fill in the gaps, I suppose, man, and you can leave anything out that you want to. I'm not here to pressure you to say anything that you don't want oh, to talk no about. Oh, you know? So the night, the night before, so December 30th, my father had arrived with his mother, my grandmother, and my grandmother was really close with my mother, so my father's mother and my mother were really, really close. But great. obviously this whole divorce thing and everything was super – shit was super weird. So it wasn't like normal. So he arrived with her and they came much later. I think they came at like 8 o'clock. So we were supposed to have dinner and they, they, they came late and all this stuff. And no, My grandmother was like – God, at the time I think she was like 72 or 75 or something. She was old, you know, uh, older, you know. And she – you know, arrived and then sat with my mother. We talked or whatever. Then I gave them both a kiss. Good night. You know, night, mommy. And I went to bed. So about 3.15 a.m., 3.18, so 3.15, I woke up to what I thought was a scream. I was pretty sure it was because I would sleep like 12 hours every night. Like I was a nice. massive sleeper. <laughs> and it was great. And then what I did is I um, I woke up and I heard – these two loud thuds, which I would later describe as like the sound of like a body hitting a wall because it literally sounded like something got thrown up against a wall. And they were about 60 to 90 seconds apart. And then I heard this voice, which sounded like my father, like muttering. And I was laying in bed terrified. And I saw, I counted these steps walking down the hallway and they stopped. 
And I always slept with my door open as a kid. And they stopped at the doorway, and I was like, I could see them out of my peripheral vision. I was like, don't look up. Something was probably screaming, do not look up. And I didn't. And they went away. And the next morning, I woke up. I ran straight to my mother's room. I started rubbishing through the bed, looking for blood, looking for this. I'm like, what happened? She's not there, obviously. I come downstairs. My father is sitting on the couch, and he's just taking a shower. He's sitting with a towel wrapped around his waist. And I said, where is my mother? And he doesn't respond right away. I was like, where is my mother? And he looks at me and he goes, mommy took a little vacation call here. <laughs> and, I, and I knew. I knew. You knew. And then he starts going to this whole diatribe about, we're not going to call the police. And he says, we're not going to call the FBI. We're not going to call anyone and tell them what happened. You know, we're going to figure this out as a family. But like when he said, like, we're not going to call the FBI. I'm thinking to myself, dude, we're in Mansfield, Ohio. Yeah. <laughs> like this is not a hotbed of activity where the FBI is going to be like coming down to like solve the case. This is not like a, <laughs> this is like a true crime film. Right. <laughs> so I'm just like, yeah, hell no. So he leaves. And meanwhile, like, so the six months leading up to this is like my father keeps saying he's, you know, he's going to move away and he's kind of telling me how like, oh, we're going to move to Erie, Pennsylvania and stuff like this. And, and he's starting his new practice there and whatever. And I'm like very concerned about this as a kid. Right. So I'm like, OK, so now my whole world is is in upheaval with the situation with the divorce. But now I'm going to have to move and get away from my friends. Like I, I was down with that. Right. So my father was setting up this new medical practice. So he's like, I'm going up to Erie to do his medical practice stuff, whatever he's doing up there. Right. So I said to myself, I was like, okay. And I, I run upstairs. And my mother had just bought a cordless phone. I run upstairs and there's this Garfield that I had, a little Santa Garfield with the cordless phone. And I hid my mother's, because after my mother told me this, you know, a couple months earlier, I took down all of her friend's numbers and I put them in this Garfield, in this little hat. And I pulled out the numbers and I ran to the bathroom and locked the door and I called them. And I told them, I was like, I told them what happened, my mother's friends, and I said, you need to call the police. Because I can't call the police. And I got to believe me anyways, I'm a kid. Mm -hmm. You call the police, this is what happened. And what happened is, is my father was away, two uniform officers show up. My my grandmother's hysterical when they show up. She's so pissed because she's like, you call the police. Your father said, don't call the police, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, that's already super weird behavior. And the police come in and they start talking to me. And I, and I, I can't get them away from my grandmother so I could tell what happened. But I'm mm -hmm. alluding to it and I'm trying to tell as much. But I do look at one of the officers and I say, I, I don't trust my father as far as I can throw him. And... I think, okay, it's the police. They're going to find her. So a day goes by, nothing happens. And I'm like, okay, and I'm an impatient little kid, right? And, you know, it's holidays or whatever. And then the mistress comes over, the girlfriend, and she brings us, like, food because my mom's not around. So she's going to, you know, play you mommy or whatever. Spot, it's yeah. like, fill in that spot. I'm like, okay, hell no. And I get a hold of my mother's friends again. And I'm like, what's going on? They're like, well, they think it's a... They filed a missing person. We reported a missing person's case. And I'm like, like, she's dead. Like, you fucking kidding me? So they get this detective. So anyways, this detective shows up at the house. And he, again, like, <laughs> my grandmother's like, you're not coming to the house. We're not talking to the police. But like, she's screaming hysterically at him. And he's like, well, you know, he's very nice. He's very charming. And I just kind of step right away. I'm like, no, come on in. And I let him in. <laughs> I'm like, screw this. <laughs> Like, some shit's about to go down here. Like, this is not acceptable. And 
you know, and like I said, I talk about this like in way more detail in my podcast and all this stuff. But essentially, yes. I pull him aside and I and I say I want to talk to you, and he gives me his card, and I and I say to him, "Look, my mother is not missing. My mother would never leave me. She's dead, or he's got her somewhere, and mm-hmm. something has happened. And then what ends up happening is." I go to school the next day. School starts after the Christmas break. And I say to the principal of the school, I'm like, I give her the card. I'm like, you need to call this dude, Dave Massmore, at the Mansfield Police Department and get him over here. Because I knew that school was my safe zone. I was away from my grandmother. I was away from my father. I, I was around friends. And like when I went to school, it was not about work. It was about, I'm going to find my mother. Like I'm going to find out what happened to her. And I was saying things to... You know, so Dave, Dave Messmore comes to the school and I'm like, I tell him everything, every bit of information possible, like the girlfriend, the whole story, the whole, and he's just like looking at me like this fucking kid. I'm like, my mother is dead. And I was so fucking persistent every day I go to school and I would tell him like, okay, I'm going to go home and I'm going to, when my mother, grandmother's downstairs taking care of my little sister, I'm going to run upstairs. I'm going to pull the bookshelves out of the wall to look at the crawl space for my mother's body or look for her purse or look for this and look for clues, all this stuff. And I ended up finding a, uh, about halfway through January, 1990, as I'm talking to him, I'm like, what are the leads? What's happening? Blah, blah, blah. I go with my father to his office to get some documents. Like he had to go pick some stuff up for work. So he takes me with him. Just like, and, and, my father's behavior has gone from being this violent, very aggressive sort of asshole to being very nice and sweet and just hmm. like, I'm playing a video game because I got a Nintendo that year for Christmas. I'm playing Double Dragon. And he's like, what is this game? It's very violent. And I'm thinking to myself, who are you? Like, What is going on here? Like, what did you do? Who are you? What did you do with my father? The, my asshole father? Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Total 180. That total 180. So, he takes me to his office, then he goes into the gas station to pay for gas before we go home. I knew that's my one opportunity. So I start rummaging through his truck while because I could see him in the gas station. I find two pictures. One is up they're both Polaroids. One is of a house, and the other one is his mistress in front of a fireplace with her two kids, and the fireplace is wrapped in plastic. And I thought to myself, this is a new house. I go to school the next day and I'm like, Dave. I get Dave Bassworth down again to the school. I got more things. <laughs> I tell him about what I find. Then it's probably like, so this is like mid-January 1990, 16th, 17th-ish. Around the 20th of January, my father, and my father was, and I was telling the police all these things because my father would come home and he would like have nicks or scratches on his hand and his muscles were sore, so he had me rub Ben Gay on his back because he was sore from moving boxes or whatever the hell he said, right? And I'm telling all this to Dave Massmore, but my father comes to me and he goes, so Collier, I have a medical convention in Florida. And I want us to go. It'll be a great father and son trip while mommy is gone, you know, and maybe we can talk about things or whatever. And I'm just like, oh, hell no. Because I grew up in... um Virginia, when I lived there, I grew up in the Chesapeake Bay, you know, from saltwater, (laughs) from the Atlantic Ocean, right? (laughs) So I learned how to swim at a very early age. Go back to school, I'm like, get Dave Massmore here again, (laughs) the principal. (laughs) I tell him, I'm like, Dave, I was like, my father wants to take me to Florida 
I'm not coming back. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So he's very concerned. <laughs> and also because there are no medical conventions. Like the medical conventions are always like in the spring. Cause I would go there every year with him and my mother, but they're not in the middle of January, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, like this is like, he know, like he has to know at this point, it's been three weeks and I'm talking to the police. Like, because the police are showing up to the house and like my father's meeting with his lawyer every night and all this like weird shit is going on at the house. So it's just, it's, it's bananas. And January 24th, 1990, I wake up to two strangers in my bedroom, like 6am and they're like, we're from child protective services. You need to pack a baggie of 20 minutes. That's it. I was like, we're my dog. And they're like, we'll come back for your dog. Never saw my dog again. The next day, like I, that night, I have this hor- the worst asthma attack of my life, and I think I'm going to die. I'm literally in this like f- this temporary place where I'm staying. I'm having this asthma attack. They take me to the hospital the next morning. They give me like, give me the treatment. I you know I start to like breathe again. It was amazing. And then they tell me they're like, "Call your lieutenant, Mesmer, found your mom." And then it seems like an attorney goes by, and then it says, "And she was dead." And I was like, "Oh." And the first thing out of my mouth was that bastard. And it was crazy. It's really hard because that was like, and like, like I said, I talk about this in the podcast and like the emotional stuff and yes. sort of things are going through my head. But like, you know, my whole world had changed. I mean, my whole world changed three and a half weeks earlier when she was missing. And I knew she was dead, but like nobody believed me <laughs> except for yeah. one detective who took a chance on this, on this annoying pedantic 11 soon to be 12 year old child that's like this little asthmatic little asthmatic kid (laughs) who's just like so so tenacious that it just like you can't like you're not like no (laughs) like that's not gonna happen like he's not gonna get away with this i mean that was my mindset right and it was literally at that point like that morning when he said mommy took a little vacation i was like oh it's game on motherfucker okay i got it i see you yep I see you. I got you. All right. This is that. This is how it's going to go down. Okay. We'll see what happens. And he's still incarcerated to this day. <laughs> Hell yeah, he is. And uh, good. Fuck him. I did read that there really was only one detective that believed you. Have yeah. you ever had a chance to go back and thank him in adulthood? Oh, yeah. I mean, Dave and I have had a relationship, I mean, uh, for years, you know, and he's in the he's in the film, obviously, uh, a murder in Mansfield. You know, I've interviewed him on the podcast. I I actually bring him back too. somebody told me he died. but I was like, oh, I don't think so, because he just sent me a message on Facebook. (laughs) I I I hope not. (laughs) I fucking hope not. Um, I need to bring him back. But, you know, yeah, he's amazing. Yeah, of course. You know, and I knew him growing up and I not to get too far into it, but his wife, and he and myself, we became very close and they were going to adopt me and they oh, were not really? awarded custody of me. And because we really bonded, I mean, after the trial and everything, I spent the whole summer with hanging out with him and his family because they had like mm-hmm. a, you know, look, I had just been through what is, I mean, so just so the listeners know, essentially what happened, I'm trying not to give too much away, but essentially yeah. what, what happened is my mother's body is discovered. They arrest my father. I give the testimony of the grand jury to indict my father. They indicted him because of my testimony. It goes to trial. It's the 
it's like the trial of the century from where I'm from. It's like the OJ trial if you, you know, if you lived in Los Angeles, but it's a small town Mansfield. And it was a fiasco. And I testified in court for two days against my father, staring my father down on the witness stand. That was like probably the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life. Yeah. And he is still incarcerated. And, you know, it was, it was crazy because he, he had like a top-notch legal defense team, several lawyers, oh, sure. and and a lot of the the evidence was circumstantial because there was no blood, there was no fibers, there was no this and that. Like, I mean, there was great police work behind it for sure. I mean, Dave Mask yeah. was amazing, you know, and to believe a kid. I mean, because his job was threatened because they said they said to him they were like, "You're like you're going after a doctor. We don't do this." And he's like, "Yeah, but this kid, literally, like literally, this kid will not leave me. This kid is going to haunt." my dreams <laughs> like, i'm going to start leave seeing me alone. <laughs> he's going to show up in my bed he's going to show up in my bedroom one night like like <laughs> the shining or whatever like it's, 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 it's going to be crazy but he would literally was like this this kid is so is so determined like how can i not like how can i not how can we not do something would you have taken the same route or thought the same if your mother wouldn't have said that particular phrase to you earlier on about hey if something happens, your dad's the one who did it. If she never would have said that, would you have thought the same way? That's a really interesting question. I've never really thought about that. But I would say yes, because my mother was my world. Mm-hmm. And I knew what I heard and I knew what I knew I knew what happened. Like I knew that she was dead. I didn't want to believe it, but I knew it. And like I said at that point on December, the morning of December 31st, 1989, like it became a foot race between me and my father. And I was like, oh, you're not going to get away with this. Like I knew, I knew. And my father yeah. was so violent and he was so, and the way his behavior changed and just, we're not going to call the police. We're not going to, like all of it. It was just like, this. Like you've done something. Like, yeah. you, like she's not here because of you. I don't know if you, like, I mean, I knew that she was most likely dead, but it was mm-hmm. like, if if she's not dead, you've done something with her. She's locked in a cage somewhere, or wh- whatever it is. Mm-hmm. The really crazy thing for me is is you know it's a missing persons case until somebody believes me. Until this yes. this detective goes, hey, this kid like won't like this kid is so adamant about this. He's so pedantic with all these details of just what happened and why it happened and all this. And the sad thing is, is just recently as twenty twenty, like forty five percent of murders go unsolved in the United States. And yeah these domestic violence issues, like it literally is treated. We were talking, you know, before we started this, it's like raising awareness because, and let's just be real. It's mostly women that this happens. It's like 90% of women that this happens to 95% easily. And there's a domestic dispute or they're in a a separation or there's uh, a divorce. And all of a sudden the woman goes missing. Oh, she stormed off. There was a fight. And then it's, and, you know, a lot of people want to excoriate the police. You know, they want to, they want to go after me like, oh, they treat it as this, this case. And, oh, they, you know, it's a throwaway case or whatever. And, yeah, there is some truth to that. But also these cases become – they become backlogged. There's so yeah. many of them. Absolutely. And it's like how do you investigate this? And if you don't have someone who is an advocate, who is on the side of the victims and like saying no – no, this is, and I didn't know this as a kid. Like I didn't know any of this. I just knew what was right. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I just knew that this motherfucker wasn't going to get away with killing my mother. 
that was my like drive. But as an adult, like and talking about this all the time on the podcast and talking to people and interviewing survivors and interviewing true crime people and interviewing detectives and whatever lawyers, you have to be an advocate. You have to, somebody has to be proactive because look at like Robert yes. Durst who passed away this year, oh, yeah. who was still about ready to finally face charges for the murder of his wife, Kathleen. McCormick. Yeah. Finally, that was in 1980 fucking four. Yeah. And he's a fucking psychopath. It, it, yep. like, and he's he already got convicted for another murder before, like after that. And and yeah, you could be like, oh, well, it's the Durst family and they have money. No, 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 no. It's not that they covered it up and they didn't. There was not that. It was literally the police department was like, it was a domestic left. They got into an argument, blah, blah, blah. And they may have suspected things, but they didn't have enough evidence to arrest him. Yeah. And I think so when I look back on this, like as an adult, I go, well, shit, man. If I hadn't have done that, my father would have got away with it 100%. oh absolutely 100 percent. yeah and it's a sad thing to say and it's a sad thing to like see that this is really the reality of all this is that they really nobody is advocating for these people and, yeah. and it's just and it's and it's it's heartbreaking it's heartbreaking because it happens and it happens with children too and I think when you, the more we discuss these things I mean this is like leads me into like why I do the podcast and why I made the film and all of this journey that I've been on. I mean, as I was telling somebody earlier today or yesterday, I said, you know, I haven't taken my foot off the gas since I was 11. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I was 11 when this happened. I was 12 years old when it went to trial. And by the way, I was abandoned by my entire family. I was raised in the foster care system. That was going to be one of my questions about your, your teenage years and how all that happened. But I do have a question before that. So when the trial was over and he got convicted, was there a feeling of satisfaction? Just like, you know what? I told you, man. Like, I told you I would put you behind bars. There wasn't. It, there was none? It was sadness. Really? It was sadness because it was my dad. And as much as I fucking didn't like my father, it's still my father. Yeah. And I remember just like having a conversation with the judge, like before the sentencing, he was explaining to me about like forgiveness. If you can't forget, you can't forgive and this, that. And I think that's what he was telling me. I was like, that doesn't make any sense to me, but I was like, I'm going to have to find a way to, to move on. I'm going to fucking move on with my life. Like this mm-hmm. is like, this is what's going to happen now. This doesn't do any good to anyone for me to like hang it up now. I mean, I think there was relief because here's mm-hmm. the thing. I'm abandoned by my entire family. My mother's side of the family wants nothing to do with me. Or my father's side of the family blames me for my father getting yeah. arrested and, and, and going to trial. My mother's side of the family blames me because they say you look like your father. Like literally my aunt, my godmother, my mother's sister said we can't take you because you look like your father. Because my father had molested their two daughters a couple of years previously no, that he shit. was going to be charged with. And they did not they couldn't bring charges against him because my cousins couldn't go through with testifying because it's so traumatic. And look, it's not their fault. Like it's a fucking traumatic thing to have yeah, happen to definitely. you when you're a child. And that's a problem. So there was that sort of, I guess, guilt and shame with that. Right. Yeah. And then my father's side of the family, you don't, you, you're going to put your father in prison. So I, I was, I was in the foster care system. Like I was, that's where I was remanded because I was in, uh, in the foster care system, which was horrible. Until I was adopted when I was 13. Now, great, I was adopted by a wonderful family. I, I wanted to mm-hmm. I wanted to be adopted by the Mass Wars, and then I ended up being adopted by Zigglers, who you know you can see in the film. And and it was it was wonderful. It was a massive family, like like 
massive. You know, they only had one child, but their brother, they my yeah. father is like ten brothers and sisters, and, and nine brothers and sisters, and she had four, and it's like you know, there's a. I was like, oh, it's the family. Oh, this is like it's like a kit you open awesome. up. <laughs> it's like you throw water on it, and it grows. It's like oh, this is amazing. <laughs> um, it's like gremlins, they multiply. But uh, so that was really cool. It was it was really lovely to be embraced by them, right? And that family's that oh, family. That's great. But um, but while I was going through all this, I had no one. And yeah. so again, with the thing with my father getting convicted and the satisfaction, like the thing was, is that I was literally in the nadir of my life the fucking lowest of the low and I had no one and I had these two choices which is tell the truth honor your mother do the right thing and your life is over <laughs> yeah don't and your life is over <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean because <laughs> yeah. if my father doesn't if my father gets off like he's Italian he's already displayed how violent he is in my upbringing now that I'm like the one who got him arrested and tried to, to, to get him, try to get him to go to prison for murdering my mother. And if he gets off, like who's he coming after? Oh, They're going to yeah. find me in a ditch. They're going to find me buried underneath the house in another state, or he's going to make my life a living hell for the rest of my life. Right. Oh, absolutely. You know, I think that like when you're in those situations and you have to just, you know, I was telling somebody earlier today, I was in another interview and I was, I'm so grateful I'm so grateful for the decision I made because if I was to die tomorrow, I would literally a have done everything that I needed to do, but B I would have done what was right for my mother, for myself, for my family, for the justice system, for whatever, for future people that could potentially have this happen to me to raise awareness or whatever. But you're given these moments in life. And my mother used to call it the brass ring. My mother would talk about, you know, the, um, my mother would talk about like the carousel horses when she would grow up. You go on the carousel and you grab the brass ring, you win the prize. My mother would always tell me, grab the brass ring in life, Collier. And I knew that that was my moment. And it wasn't a pretty brass ring, but it was like, this is the moment where all the chips are on the table. They're all slid to the middle of the table. This is it. This is for all the marbles. And it's you against, it's you against him. <laughs> yeah. You know? And it's it, to the point where it's just, I'm staring him down in court and he won't look at me. <laughs> I just wanted that. Like, look at me, motherfucker. Like, I'm going to make sure you never walk free again. Like that's going to happen. And so even though it was this foot race and I've, you know, used all these analogies, I suppose on what it is at the same time, it's still my father. So when I hear that he's convicted, you know, there's the verdict and guilty and, you know, people are cheering and all this stuff. And I'm just like, I don't feel good about it, but I feel relieved. I feel like I did the right thing. I feel like at the same time, it's just like when I heard, you know, when they told me my mother was, they found my mother and she was dead. And I'm like, okay. Like I knew he killed her. Yeah. I was, there was, there was this sense of relief for sure. Like, oh, okay. Now I have my answer, right? And so again, that was like, okay, now he's going to go to prison for what he did. Okay, that's that box is checked, but it's still the emotional side of it is still something that I deal with to this day because mm -hmm. he is my father. And I talk about this in the podcast. And I talk about this on my TikTok. Yes. And I talk about this to people like I had nausea. It's just, but it's 
it really is true. There are very, and, and this is sort of what, this is not sort of, this is exactly what drove me to do what I'm doing now, 30 years later. Yeah. You know, still, is, and, and coming to Hollywood, learning how to be a filmmaker, t- telling my story, getting people to believe in me, getting an agent, getting him John yeah. Morrison, who produced American History Reacts, after seeing that film, saying, that's about the consequences of violence. I want whoever made that film to help me tell my story. Eight years later, because of MySpace, I meet him because he's, he wants to <laughs> photograph my girlfriend for this coffee table book, and we become friends, and he wants to do a project. A couple years later, I was like, it was stupid, and I was like, you need to do something much better. Let's make a docu-series about the consequences of violence, because everything, I kept saying this my whole life, all we see, bad guy goes to jail, state gets his restitution, the victim is dead, the gavel hits, and we say, Next. And that's like the consumption of true crime in a lot of ways, right? We were talking sure. about that earlier. That is the th- it's like, okay, next case, next case. What's happening yeah. now? What's happening now? It's like we never examine the real and dire consequences of these actions and how they affect ancillary victims, the non-combat PTSD, the impacts on communities and families and the friends and how these things rattle people to their core. We just go, oh, okay, yeah. well, okay, they, back, okay, it's done. And that became like my mission and my drive to tell the story and to, you know, make the film of Murder in Mansfield. But, but just me getting out of my small town and saying, I don't want to be known for this. Like, I mean, yeah. I know for it now, but I'm known for it on my terms. Exactly. And it's crazy because I had this moment where, you know, and all I wanted to do was get the fuck out of Mansfield, which I did. And I was like, I'm going to go. I wanted to go to New York, and I wanted, it, it was either going to go to New York or L.A. Well, I don't like shitty cold weather, so I'm going to L.A., right? <laughs> but I wanted to go to a place with no money in my pocket where I knew nobody knew who the fuck I am. So I could control the narrative, and I could – everything that I would get, I would earn because people wouldn't know who I am, and they wouldn't be like, oh, let's do him a favor. We feel bad for him. or oh, Because that was very real yeah. shit that I grew up with. And this is how I talk about the podcast. It's like the real shit of like why I – did what I've done and, and who I am is because of this relentless drive to like do some good with this shit. Like I'm going to yeah. tell this story. I'm going to impact people. I'm going to speak to that one fucking kid who is in foster care, who is literally sitting there staring down the barrel of a gun of life and going, fuck, if this guy can do it, so can I. Because I wanted that person, and I didn't have that person. So I'm like, fuck, I'll be that person, right? And that's what drove me to make the film. That's what drove me to do, you know, to tell the story and to honor my mother. It's just like this kid, I'm just at the core of this. I'm just a kid who loved my mom, you know, and who wanted to do right by her and to make sure that she didn't die in vain, you know? Before we let you promote yourself and the film and let people know a little bit, you know, what you talk about in your podcast and the film, I did have one question from a listener. It's a good question, but it's a little bit of a tough one. Um, Sure. You being your father's son, was there any point that you had a thought or in the back of your mind to where you were like, if he's capable of something like this? Am I? Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. Really? You know, what's really, what's really interesting, and I was just talking about this yesterday. I was on a, I was on a date, and I was telling her, and, and, uh, and she can relate, too. And then I was telling somebody, you know, I've started talking about this recently. I don't know why, but 
you know, I was bullied in high school. Mm -hmm. Like, because I went from a private school where my parents had me to a public school, right? And I was bullied, and I was bullied because of who I was, I think, but also just because, like, you know, sure, they were picking on me maybe because I, I was, but also, like, boys will be boys, and kids get bullied in school. Yeah. You know what I mean? It just happens. Like, I know we try to protect people from that, but like it's gonna fucking it's gonna happen. happen. Somebody's gonna throw you up against the lockers, have to kick your ass or whatever, or steal your lunch money. It just happens, right? Now, I found myself in those circumstances because I'm a big guy. I'm six two, I'm two hundred pounds. Like I was a tall kid and a big kid. And I would just tell myself, Whatever they do, don't fucking hit back. Yeah. Because I was worried that if I did, I would snap out of it 30 seconds later with blood all over my hands mm -hmm. and somebody's face turned into a plate of spaghetti i was so afraid of that rage that i saw in my father mm -hmm. growing up that i was capable of that and that took me a long time to get over i'm talking decades of just it was actually when I started boxing, I realized like <laughs> I'm not capable of this or fire like MMA stuff. And I realized that like, okay, I'm not capable of like, there's not going to be a switch that's going to flip in me. But on that note, there's also the flip side of that, which is people look at me and go, well, if his father's capable of that, maybe he's capable of yeah. that. And that has haunted me in relationships over decades oh for sure with, with women or like family or like oh his dad like especially when the film came out and then they saw it they were like well you know he could be capable and that fucking hurts man it really does because i'm not and i'm not my father i'm definitely my mother's son yeah and i don't have that but like for a long time it did like i said it did go through my head that i could be capable of that and i remember like after i made the film and the film was starting to come out this is end of 2018 right so I was I, as talking more about this with people and people that are psychologists and things like I was like, well, is this something that I could inherit? Like from my father, is this yeah. an inherited trait where I could just go off the rails or I could or, or not even freak out, but but get to a point where I have no empathy, like the sociopathy gene, the narcissism gene, the, the, yeah. the no empathy, no remorse, you know, because my father is a victim narcissist. You know what I mean? Like. Mm -hmm. And that's the crazy thing about socio. This is like what I talk about in the podcast, like when I read my father's letters. So I have five hundred some letters from my father over thirty years. Yeah. That I and I read, and I've only read like four on the podcast, but I'm going to continue. I continue to read them because it gives such insight into the mind of a sociopath. And I literally say that in the trailer. This, I'll let you in the mind of a sociopath, like because nobody's ever heard these letters. They're just to me, and you're you're listening to a man who murdered his son's mother, gaslighting and manipulating his son. And he was, he was on this tip. I just had an episode where I, I read a letter. I think it was episode 33. I'm on mm -hmm. episode 41 now. Episode 33, I found this letter because I pulled them out randomly. They're in no particular order. I just pull it out right there in front of the camera, right there live on the podcast and the audio, and I just started reading it. You know, And um, I don't look at them beforehand or anything. It's totally spontaneous. And... There was a letter he, he alludes to like stuff coming out about my mother that's unflattering and he, I should know that he really loves my mother and he mm. he really loved me and he was a good father because Sherry his girlfriend mistress who had his baby li literally uh, would complain that he treated my mother and I so well. I mean just like insane shit, right? You you murdered your wife. Yeah. How, like <laughs> I don't think she's complaining about that. So 
so I let people in this sort of peek into this world. And what happened is, is so I read this letter and he's talking about this. And I'm like, oh, this is when he's trying to get me to rescind my testimony. And then the latest episode, two episodes ago, I had found a tape that he had sent me almost five years to the day of the murder where he goes on a radio show, a Christian radio show, which is a very it's a conspiracy theory, sort of art bellish, very, I guess you could say it's QAnon-ish almost in a lot of ways nowadays, but very conspiracy oriented. And he's spouting off all these consp crazy conspiracy theories. My mother selling babies in a pedophile ring, Chinese gold smuggling, like just this crazy stuff because he was trying to get that propaganda out there. And he was doing this, you know, letter campaign to people of like my mother having an affair with Messmore. He never, never met my mother. Like they never knew each other, like all this just crazy stuff. And because he was trying to get an appeal and he was, you, and it, you know, the crazy thing is, is in this episode, because the next episode, I listened to the tape and I get right there live. I hadn't listened to it at all. I listened to it live and I give like my take. I stop it. I talk about these things and how they happen. And then I interview the people that interviewed him 30 years or 25 years later because they don't understand why I could think my father is guilty. And I'm like, because I heard the murder happen. And because <laughs> of what happened. Like, of course he's guilty. Yeah. But they didn't understand because of all this police corruption. And I, and I come to this conclusion of like, I say to them, People have to listen to the episode, but essentially it's like they were manipulated too because my father latched onto a story and then used it because he's a, a wickedly intelligent human being and he knows how to manipulate people, mm -hmm. you know? And that was a really hard pill for them to swallow. Like you're, you're a victim of this too. Like you're not, you're intelligent people, but like this is the insidious nature of this shit. So when I read these letters and I let people in, so yeah, those sorts of things I think about and I'm like, God, am I capable of that? Like when I start looking at this and I'm like, and I'm a very self-aware guy, mm -hmm. but it really is true. It's like, I am so overly self-aware of anything that remotely steps into that universe of that behavior. I dip it in the butt. Absolutely. Like, don't go there. Don't do that. Like that is not, that's not how you behave with someone or whatever. And, not that I ever have behaved in that way, but I'm sure like, like human beings are manipulated by nature. Anyways, I'm sure that I've done things that like, oh, well, okay, I want to get my way or whatever. We're all victim of that. But I try to be really self-aware. And, and when I share these things, it's also make other people aware of not only when it's happening to them, but if they're doing it to someone else, just try to make the world a better place, right? Mm -hmm. But yes, to answer in a roundabout way of answering your, your viewer's question, like, yeah, there was. It, it took me a long time to sort of come to to really reconcile with the fact that I am not my father. Yeah. And it probably really happened. Like once that moment happened in the film, yeah. Uh, with the confrontation. Yeah. I think that that was finally the moment that I was just like the realization. And that's why all you listeners out there, you have to watch this. You have to watch it. You also have to listen to his podcast because everything we've been talking about is a is a very broad stroke. There's a lot more detail. There's a lot more insight to what Collier was feeling during all of this going down, and that's why you guys need to listen to this podcast, Moving Past Murder. And I guess going on that note, what are your plans for the future? What do you got going on? Because you got a you got a great podcast. You did the great film. Are we still going up? Are we just going to hit that plateau? Or are you just going to keep going, man? 
I'm never going to stop. I mean, Good. you know, the podcast has technically been out for a year. I've been doing the podcast, but I, I tried to take a break. I was, I was on a show last year, a reality show that I was DP and then I stopped that. And I did commercials. I was like, okay, I'm going to get back into the podcast. Cause I also needed the moment. Cause I was like, I just kind of did it on a whim and I was like, and it was good, but I was like, I need to really dial in a format and I've seen yeah. what people are doing. So now this is really all I want to do is, is do the podcast, make content that is really inspiring people. I mean, yes. look, I have a YouTube channel. I have a Patreon. I have, and not and like all of this. I've, I fund myself <laughs> by working. Well, I found you on off. TikTok. So, like your TikToks are fucking great, man. Thank you. And like TikTok was something I just started doing like a little over a month ago. Like literally because I was going to CrimeCon, I was like, let me put these out. And then it started going viral. And I was like, oh, there really is interest in my story. Yeah. And it's really helped raise awareness for the podcast, but it's also helped a lot of people. But it's, it's, it's really crazy to see the impact of these things and the thirst for this in a lot of ways. In a, in a way, because I also feel having come out of the pandemic and people being locked away with someone for a year in quarantine or whatever, they really got to know their partner or their friend or their roommate or whatever. And they saw these sides of people that they didn't know existed. And some of it wasn't pretty. And I think that a lot of people became more aware of what a narcissist is absolutely, and how these things are. And it's really cool to be able to share these stories and to talk to survivors like Tyra Newell you know, who is the one who ended John Meehan's life. You know, the series Dirty John is based on this. And, and you know, and I firmly believe, and I think she does too, is that like he came to kill her by the grace of God. It worked in reverse and she ended his life because honestly, if he had killed her, he would have killed her whole family. Like, oh, yeah. like there's, these are psychopaths. These are sociopaths. These are people who exert co uh, coercive control over people. They're manipulators. They're narcissists. They're, it's so insidious and you, you know, it is easy and it's one of the things that upsets me when people do victim blame and oh I should have known better. Well, yeah. You, what, you think that they this is what they wanted out of this? No, of course not. Like they need it's it ain't easy. Like it's easy to play the Monday morning quarterback and go, Oh, you should have done that. But oh yeah. No, that's not how it works, guys. Welcome you know, to true you don't crime. recognize this behavior and this is like oh, you should have known better. Well, guess what? Maybe you should step in the shoes and play a little bit in that world if you're really if you're that skilled at it you, you're the armchair detective <laughs> let's see you take on something exactly let's see you have the balls as an 11 year old child to step up to the plate and deal with a monster a literal monster in your life and be like you're not going to get away with it and i'm going to find the evidence to put you in fucking prison i'm going to give you all the rope to hang yourself and it's crazy and it's like I mean, I say crazy is for lack of a better, you know, superlative, but you know, oh, for sure. But there is an element of just like you, you step back and you go, is this like, is this what my, this is my life? And, you know, I spent so much of my life trying to not have this be my life. Yeah. And then now it is my life, but it's on my terms. Exactly. I'm telling the story. I'm doing this. And I think that that's also one of the things that, you know, you and I were talking about and we have a very mutual passion to this, which was really cool to discover is that that is the empowering thing that survivors and victims are allowed to do. And one of the things that as I'm delving into this, because I came into the true crime world as a filmmaker, I went to film festivals, all this stuff. I didn't know that this world existed. Look, I was on an episode of Forensic Files. It's one of the most popular episodes ever. They're doing a book. They interviewed me for it. All that stuff. Great. I'm glad that people will like that, right? But there are people that are victims that have their stories exploited 
And these companies and these podcasts and these people make obscene amounts of money. Obscene. And these people don't get anything. Yep. Obscene. There is one podcast that makes a million dollars a month on their Patreon alone. Yeah. And it's a comedy true crime podcast. And yeah, they and joke they about tours, shit. And they joke about things. And it's like, that's not fucking funny. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's someone's life. That's someone's suffering. Yeah, somebody accused me. They were like, oh, you're profiting off your mother's murder. I'm like, first of all, the podcast at the moment does not make any money. It's self-funded. I'm working my ass off as a filmmaker doing jobs to fund the podcast (laughs) until I get sponsors, until it blows up. And like, that's why I'm promoting it. And I'm making really good shit, by the way. And it's like the the other people and forget the like the financial thing is a huge is a massive issue for me with this stuff. But also, it's like you're taking their story and you're disempowering them and not letting them do it. Yes. You know, or you're taking advantage of it. Now, granted, there are some podcasts that do that, and I'm not saying all of them do that, but like there are specific ones that you're like, and then they have their own bad behavior going on behind <laughs> the scenes yep. of their podcast where their hosts are being inappropriate with, with female guests or are have predatory you know, are sexual predators, let's just say. Yeah. And that you have these things that are happening, which I didn't know existed until like a <laughs> month ago. Yeah. And I'm like, I know these people, you know, ancillarily because I, I, they're new in my world, but I'm like, what the fuck is going on? And that's, and that starts to really irritate me. And yeah. then I'm just like, so whatever. I mean, you know, I can, you and I could go on and on about that. But, oh God. Yeah. You know, I think again, like, I guess what I'm saying is I'm so grateful that I was able to, to take back that narrative that I had is that I escaped from in the small town where that led me into a room and then was able to tell my story because when I made the film and everything, it was coming out like I, I had friends that came up to me. They were like, Collier, what the fuck? You know, <laughs> like, what do you mean? They're like, and I had a, they were like, this is your life. Like, why didn't you ever tell me? I'm like, well, what am I going to tell you, bro? Like, yeah, what like, do you want me to Your dad killed your mom. Like you led this investigation. You did like, what like you did this and then other friends of mine that work in the business are like Collier you know we we heard you say that you're going to make a movie about your life and this is why you're learning how to be a filmmaker <laughs> we actually take you seriously because everybody fucking says that in this town oh, of course everybody's yeah. got a script yeah. everybody's got a story everybody's <laughs> got this and I'm like well yeah but I meant it and they're like no that's what we're saying like you actually did it do you understand how rare that is so I've got these the filmmaking people that are just like like what where the fuck did this come from where the, oh you actually really did what you said you were going to do when you came to la i was like yeah i did i i actually did i know it's a rarity but i actually did and then you got the other people these true crime that are just like fascinated with it as a true it's just, and it's all so new to me so it's like i'm just sort of going day by day like figuring it out and like again doing things like tiktok where it, it's driving people to the podcast yeah which, you know, will then help the podcast be because that's all I really want to do. I want to be able to make more of this material. I want to be able to read through all 500 of these letters and give these to people, give this information. I want to put a book together. I want to write a book. I want to write a book with these letters with psychology. There's so many things I want to do because I'm just so driven to this work. Because again, I haven't taken my foot off the gas pedal since I was 11. That's awesome. And it's though. really cool. And it drives me like, you know, so now I'm getting all hyped up. It's like 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> Two o'clock your time, you're getting hyped up for me. I mean, I like coffee. And I'm just like, I get, I get so energized and jazz about this, especially when I see. Yeah, you know, the crazy thing is, is like I, when I set out to make the film, I was like, I just, all I wanted to do was really find out why my father killed my mother. That was yeah. like it. I wanted to get that answer, and that's why I do the TED talk about this. Like, what if the answer you seek isn't the answer you find? 
And like, what do you do with that? And then you realize the answer you seek is not the answer you really needed in the first place, because then you would have had more questions. Than these things. So like I said, I talk about all this in the podcast, but it also is this scenario where I was able to do this and I scratched that itch and I, and I, I wanted to do it for myself to move past it. And I wanted to change one person's life and then speak to that one kid in foster kids going through that, that, that doesn't think that there's light at the end of the tunnel and say, Hey man, it's going to be okay. Like it's gonna be okay. And there is, um, I'm getting emotional. <laughs> I, no, I think I think right. emotional it is, but uh, being able, like, I wanted to talk to that kid. Like, I just want to say, like, hey, man, it's going to be okay. Like, there is light at the end of the tunnel. There is, like, you're going to be okay. Yeah, I was okay. You're going to be okay. That's all I ever wanted. That's all I ever wanted. That's all I ever wanted to hear. And nobody could give that to me. You know. And the person that could comfort me wasn't there because they were taken from me. They were taken from the world. So, sorry. No, you're fine. You're fine. Take your time. It's, it, 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 what happened is, and again, I made the film. I went out to all these film festivals. I'm traveling around the world. I'm speaking, doing all this. I'm just like, this is amazing. But it's not in like that true crime genre, right? I mean, Variety says like, you know, it's a documentary that comes dressed as true crime, but it's really a plea for humanity. And it actually really is true. Like literally that final scene with my father is literally a plea for humanity. Some sort of humanity out of this monster. And it's incredible because when I was talking to people is the stories that come out and the way that it is empowered victims who have been voiceless. Even if it's just to reach out to me to say thank you. Thank you because I saw what you did and that gives me hope. Mm -hmm. And you know, we talk about these podcasts, these shows, these things that generate this obscene amount of money exploiting people's stories. But you know what they don't get? They don't get that. They don't get that kinship and that eye to eye of like, you fucking changed my life. You've inspired me so much because of you. Not because of somebody's story you regurgitated. Not because of somebody's thing you were getting drunk on the podcast and talking about is is this horrible. You doing what you did for your mother, for your sister, for your father, for your brother, for your best friend, for your lover, whatever that is, you fighting for that person makes me fight inside for who I am and for what I can become and know that that is not going to fucking define me. That is probably the satisfying factor of all you've been through and what you've done. And wow, man, I tell you what, that's a, I mean, it's a perfect message and that's the way it should be. A lot of admiration on this side of the microphone for you, man. A lot of admiration and, um, you're a great guy to talk to. I mean, at the end of the day, man, I'm just a kid who loved his mom. I think, I think a lot of us can relate to that man for sure, dude. And God damn, I appreciate you being so open, very transparent tonight, dude. I do appreciate that. 
I do. And there's the power and authenticity and vulnerability for sure. Absolutely. And I never really understood that. And, um, so funny. There's like one of the stops that we were at in the film at a film festival and I was up on the stage and they do the Q and A's afterwards and they're asking you know, questions or whatever. Oh, it was like this, you know, obviously there's a lot of questions directed towards me. I mean, my, my directors won two Academy Awards and they're asking her stuff, but then they're like, Oh, but like you call your, but you know, I made this joke and I said, Oh, it feels like we're at a panel at Comic-Con and everybody laughs. Whatever. <laughs> and so people start asking questions and, you know, when this guy comes up to the microphone and he goes, you know, Collier, it's funny that you made that joke about Comic-Con. And I was like, yeah, why is that? He goes, because you're a real life superhero. You fucking are, though, man. And I was just like, I fucking lost it. Everybody starts dropping and standing. And I'm like, oh my God, you're kidding me. (laughs) But I just think that it's just like the the vulnerability and the authenticity and just. Yeah, it's real, man. Sharing what it is, sharing what it is. Absolutely. You know. What I tell you what, Collier, (laughs) why don't you go ahead and uh, let the listeners know where they can get a hold of you, where they can see you, and if they want to, where they can contact you. So uh, my podcast is called Moving Past Murder. It's on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcast from, it's there. Uh, My website is callyourlandry.com. There are links to... You know, the video version of the podcast, my TikTok, uh, Instagram, all of my social media handles are all at Call Your Landry. I not only do the audio version of the podcast, but I also film and have video versions, which are on my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com forward slash Call Your Landry. Check it out. Uh, I release a new episode every single Friday. And my film is called A Murder in Mansfield. You yes. can find it on Investigation Discovery, Discovery Plus. Hulu, I guess it's back on Hulu again. And, you know, it's on it my is. website. Yeah. Maybe I'll make it. You know what? It's If you go to my website, callyourlandry.com, you click on my film, it'll be right there for you. You know, you always have my number, man, if you want to reach out and vent or just bullshit about some stuff, dude. And um, I'm going to <laughs> See, actually. You open up a can of worms <laughs> by giving me that by giving that uh, number. And, you know, and, and for the listeners, like, uh, honestly, like, I'm being cheeky, but. I really I read the DMs you guys send me and I and I really do and I try to respond and it really is me responding, not some bot. <laughs> <laughs> um, and for the and like for you know, I discovered I met you through TikTok. I just want to yes, say sir. like I was so reticent about getting on TikTok because I couldn't didn't really I was the same it. way. <laughs> it's so stupid. And then it's like I find great people like yourself and, and, and the people that I've connected with yeah. and in this community and i and i do want to give a shout out to the tiktok community for really embracing me it's only been a month but they've really embraced my story and i and i'm grateful for that okay. and i'm grateful for the people that have come to the podcast and discovered it and i know the greatest feeling is as a creator is knowing that the material that you are creating is resonating with your yes. audience and helping them and that's like an amazing thing that's a great feeling yeah. it is man and i appreciate you taking the time to do this interview and you are welcome back on anytime you want to, and I am going to forward you some contact information here as well. So yeah. expect a text Shout here. Shout out a few Sarah Turney. Absolutely. Absolutely. She is one of the great ones, one of the good ones, and in it for the Absolutely. for the right reasons. And yeah, you two I think yeah. have a lot more in common than what you think. So I think you two Yeah. You two would get along quite quite well. Um brother. Thank you so much. This is amazing. (laughs) No, I appreciate it, man. And 
like I said again, I appreciate you being so transparent. And you know, like you said, man, there's there were some things that you said, and you got a little emotional. And I'll be honest, man, I was, you know, over here. I I can mute my microphone so you don't hear me sniffling or anything. But <laughs> it's just you know what you're saying in the message that that you put out at the end there is it, it resonates you know even for people who haven't experienced this so just know that just know that and keep doing what the fuck you're doing man keep doing it thanks man you're welcome appreciate dude. it i appreciate you man and i hope you have a great rest of your night even in california it's you a little late <laughs> right i'm usually in bed about now <laughs> i figured all right man well uh keep in touch and you'll be getting a text from me here in a couple minutes so sounds good jay all right you take it easy man, right, man. thanks yep. nice to you. all right